I'm pretty sure that uh, most of you will be familiar with this uh, particular psalm. It is one of the famous psalms, I suppose, in the book of Psalms. It's one of those that uh, time and time again people turn to. I remember reading Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons on uh, this particular psalm. I don't know, it must be 40 years ago now. So um, I'm not going to give you all of what Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, right? but um, just to say that it was a tremendous encouragement to uh, be able to look into the psalm and see the effect uh, of what had happened to this man. Because what you find is, he, in verse 1, what he does is he gives us a statement and a conclusion, all in the one. And the statement really is a declaration, isn't it? Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And it is also a conclusion. One of the strange things about reading in the Psalms is that uh, very often you get the conclusion given at the beginning, and then the writer goes on to tell us how he came to that conclusion. And, uh, you know, if you and I were writing something, isn't it, then uh, you would write out what you want to say, and then you'd come to a conclusion. Uh, you know, if you read anything on sermon preparation, for example, on homiletics, then what you find is that uh, they say that, you know, you prepare your sermon, and then you come to conclusion, an application, you know, and uh, you, as it were, distribute that afterwards. It would be strange, wouldn't it, to give you the conclusion and application at the very start and uh, then work your way through these particular verses. But what you find here is that the psalmist himself wants to tell us what had happened to him. One of the great encouragements that you get here is in verse 2, in actual fact, which seems a bit strange, really, because it tells us there, But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And you might think to yourself, well, well why is that? so important because what it tells us is that he didn't stumble and he didn't slip and it's interesting isn't it? it's almost as if he comes to the precipice and he's there right on the very edge but he doesn't fall over he is sustained and he is kept he says i almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped and this is what the writer wants to tell us because here he is, he's got this conflict that's going on within him. And I'm sure that you've gone through experiences like this where you've had a conflict in your own mind, in your own heart perhaps. You know, there is something going on deep within your own soul. And the conflict that this man had was basically very simple, that he was looking at the world and looking at the people of the world, and he came to the conclusion that these people seem to be better off than the children of God. And he's thinking to himself, well, how can that be in a realm of justice if God is ruling the world at this moment of time? How can this possibly be the case? You know, you look at them and they seem, well, what do they look like? You know, they seem so strong. You know, they're full of confidence. They don't seem to be perturbed in any way. They seem to be in a state of perpetual peace. They don't seem to have any conflict within themselves. And as he goes through this particular psalm, and I don't want to go through all the verses because it would take you half hour just to go through all the verses. But the whole point is this, that when he was looking at the world, what did he see? He saw a world full of people that were dominated by self-confidence and arrogance. They were full of themselves, that's the long and short of it. They had this sense of well-being. They thought that this world was everything. They were going through the normal routine of living and they were enjoying themselves. 
they didn't have a conflict of conscience. They had the ability to go out and sin and do things and have no thought for God. And in actual fact, what it does tell us concerning these particular people in verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. It's almost as if they're lifting up their fist to God. It's almost as if they've got this arrogance, you know, that, you know, we are self-made men. You know, we have the ability to go on in this life and do things, you know, and nobody is going to control us at this particular point. You see, the problem was that he had a conflict in, in his own faith as to what was happening in the world. He was looking, his, his vision really was on the horizontal. It was looking at the world on a plane like this. Instead of having that vertical picture which he comes to at the end of the psalm, where suddenly he is looking up unto God, and then God fills his horizon. And then the vertical then becomes self-explanatory. The way in which God was working in this world. What he was doing here was that he had a conflict in his mind, a conflict of faith and trust in God, that God was in control because he looked at the world and he could see these people around and about, and he was wondering to himself, and the logical conclusion is this, well, if you do God, do good, rather, surely God is going to bless us. It was the same mentality that Job's comforters had. You know, they looked at Job and they said, well, this is now Job, you know. You've been able to hide what you really are like all of this time. But now God is judging you. And God is dealing with you because of some as it were, hidden sin that you had committed. And their logic was right, you see. They were thinking, well, if God is ruling and he is a just God, well, surely those who are living a righteous life will be blessed of God. And it seems to be a logical conclusion, doesn't it? But the truth is this, that God doesn't work like us, does he? His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are his thoughts from our thoughts. He doesn't deal with us like that. He deals with us for our soul's benefit. And sometimes our soul's benefit is going through valleys and darkness and shadows, and we are overcome at various times. And the reason for that is, of course, that he wants us to have more dependence upon him. Some great verses, isn't there, in um, Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, the writer in Hebrews chapter 12, he, he wants to tell these people that they have become the children of God. And they were going through all kinds of conflicts and difficulties and problems. And in chapter 12, it says like this in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, this is a, you know, a quotation from the book of Proverbs. And then he goes on to say, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily 
be in subjection to the Father of spirit and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see what he's saying here? What God is doing is he's making us partakers of his holiness. What he is doing is he is dealing with the problems and the unbelief that can sometimes be in our hearts. This man, you see, he had the conflict of faith. He wasn't sure why God was dealing with him like this and why God was dealing with the world. You know, and if providence is controlling all of the events of the world, well, why doesn't justice prevail? Why is it that these people, you know, why aren't they dealt with when they do wrong and they do evil and they have no thought for God? Why is it that God doesn't come in judgment upon them and deal severely with them that they might suffer the penalty for their injustices, for their wrongdoing, for their sin? You see, when God allows people to do what they like, it's a clear indication of God abandoning those people and leaving them to do it. This is what you get in uh, Romans chapter 1, isn't it? You know, God gave them over. You know, as if God had said, right, oh, you've gone far enough, you know, right, I'll just wash my hands of you. Just handed them over. Now, it sounds severe to us. But the point is this, that God does this for you and I's benefit. That you and I profit from the way in which God chastens us. It's not pleasant, but it is profitable. And sometimes, you know, we don't realize that what God is doing is that he is purging us. You know, remember the Apostle Peter, he's talking about us, you know, as gold being refined. We're going through the fire, he says. And what is happening? You know, the, 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 the scum and the dirt and, you, you know, the stuff that pollutes the gold comes to the surface and you scrape it off. And then what have you got? You've got more refined gold. And that's what we are like. And what God is doing is that he is dealing with us as children. He is dealing with us as his children. It's interesting, isn't it? When it comes in verse 23, you see how, you, how this picture draws us to that conclusion as well. Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. What a wonderful picture, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the parent and the child or the father and the child walking down the road and the father's got the grip of the child. You know, it's a bit like what Jesus said, isn't it? You know, that you are in my father's hand and nobody can pluck you out of my father's hand. Why? His hand is holding us. And this is the picture that's being drawn here for us, you know. You know, you hold me by my right hand. You've got hold of me, says. You know, so that I don't stumble and I don't fall. 
You know, I might have difficulties and I might have problems in looking at you know, the state or the condition of the world. You can't fully understand your providential dealings. But the fact is this, that you are my heavenly Father and you are concerned with me. You see, you get this picture here in verse 15, isn't it? If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of what? Of you were children. You see, what he had done was he had kept his peace, as it were. He had held back. You know, this disgruntlement that was within him, the problem that he was struggling with in his own psyche and in his own consciousness. You know, he was grappling with this. But he didn't want to, as it were, spurt it out to all and sundry, to God's people, to have an ill effect upon them. But what he was doing was he was grappling with this in the darkness. But there was light there as well, wasn't there? Because God hadn't left him in that state and in that condition. So as he progresses through here, he is drawing this sort of parallel between his condition as a godly man, because the people of the world, they didn't have any problem with conscience and sin and things like this. But him himself... What is he saying? He is wanting to tell us about himself in verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. You know, this was one of the things that was happening to me at this particular point in time. Verse 13, for example, isn't it? He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. See what he does? He gets up in the morning. You know, he's got a conscience with him. You know, he's grappling with the state of his soul. You know, he's got this problem, this dilemma in himself. You know, he's got all of these things in himself. And he is grappling with them. And when he looks at the world, he can see them. You know, everybody's happy. You know, they're going down the road and they don't seem to have any problems or difficulties. They're not afflicted by conscience and not afflicted by their sin. There's no sense of guilt with them in what they do. But me, he said, I'm plagued all day. You know? And sometimes we can be a bit like that, can't we? You know, we, we look at ourselves and we're aware, you know, that sin is active and sin is deep within us. And though we might not practice sin outwardly and doing lots and lots of bad things, you know, sometimes we have ill thoughts and evil thoughts and bad thoughts and Desires as well. And then we grapple with that, don't we? Sense of guilt in the presence of God. Sense of who we are. But let's change the note, is it? Let's get to the positive. Yeah. I worked with a guy once. He said, I can never work with negative people, he said. You always have to be positive. And I was a bit sympathetic to that, I've got to say. Okay? But anyway, come to verse 17 with me. And he says, you know, all of this I was grappling with, he said. When I could see their prosperity, I could see how they were living, you know, they were scoffing and speaking wickedly concerning oppression and all of these other things, he says. But then I said, I went into the sanctuary of God. Sanctuary of God was the tabernacle, was the temple, probably the temple. And he went into the sanctuary of God. Now, here's the, the, the change, isn't it? Because what happens to us, 
Now, this isn't the sanctuary of God, okay? The church is the sanctuary of God. You and I as being the temple of God. It's not a building like this. But we can say like this, that in the tabernacle, or in the temple rather, in this particular situation, there was that sense of coming together for collective worship. And there is something unique in collective worship. Something happens to us when we come together. You know, when we're all on Zoom, isn't it? Sorry about you people who are watching now. But when we're all on Zoom, you know, we're all isolated, aren't we? You know, you could sit in your pajama bottoms and things like this, you know. You could do lots of things, couldn't you? But the whole point was this. We were isolated. We didn't have interaction, really, with each other. We were just looking at a screen. But there is something unique about when God's people come together. Let me just bring one thing that I remember about Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And it actually wasn't in his uh, sermons on this. It was actually in a book called Preaching and Preachers, the response of the congregation to preaching. And he said, what happens when we come together collectively, he says? What takes place? He said, what happens is that you and I, we come. And we are people who bring God with us because we are the temples of God. And God has taken his habitation up within us. So God lives within us now. We have the Spirit of God who lives within us. And when we come together in a collective sense, this is when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. There is something wonderful and unique about the people of God when they come together in a collective way to worship God. It's an inspiration to us all. It encourages us. Because what? God is there. Because God comes with us. And God is present with us. And God looks favorably upon us. And us coming collectively like this, what happens is, it forces our minds and our thoughts and our desires and our yearnings and our aspirations to focus upon God. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end, says a shorter catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In collective worship, this is what happens. We come to glorify God, but we come to enjoy Him. Do we know what it is to enjoy God? To be lifted up, as it were. To be filled with a sense of the wonder and the glory of God. And he says, you know, when I come into the temple of God, he says, you know, my whole thought and my whole way of thinking... That disorientation that I had been going through when I was looking at the world. He said, suddenly, light shines. And all of a sudden, my mind starts to think properly. The way in which I start to reason. I don't reason now on the vertical any longer. I'm not reasoning about looking out to the world and saying, look how strong and, uh, you know, these people are in themselves. And, you know, the things that they are doing, they're unperturbed by certain things. But he says, all of a sudden, I start to think vertically. And I start to think of God. And then I get things into perspective. These godless people who speak against God, who sin without conscience, who do all kinds of things that are evil and bad, who seem on the surface to be so strong in themselves, 
then I realize their end. And the end of the story is not good for these people. And it's when we get that into perspective, then we realize what a real blessing it is to be one of the children of God. Till I went, he says, into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. You see, all of a sudden there's a division, isn't it? Between these people now on the one hand, himself and the people of God on the other hand. And there's a comparison being made now as to their end and the end of God's people. And this is where he is focusing his thoughts upon them at this moment of time. See how he goes on in verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you awake, you shall, what, despise their image. God looks upon them in this despicable way. They live like this in a state of arrogance and opposition to God, and God despises their image. This is something that is so alien to God. The point is this. If you look at these verses, if you were to try and make a New Testament comparison, you know, if you think of the rich man and Lazarus for a moment, isn't it? You know, two men in the world, two situations completely different. The rich man has everything. The poor man has nothing. He's a beggar man sitting at the gate of this man, pleading for some sort of benefit. And yet what happens in the end? When I consider their end, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. You remember what happened to you? Lazarus dies and he tells us that he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom, gone into heaven. And even God says, doesn't he, of Abraham as it were, whichever way you want to understand this, you know, you and your good days, he says to the rich man, isn't it? So many blessings. But this man, Lazarus, when he goes through all his trials and all his difficulties, now he says he is comforted what a difference. And what is the rich man pleading for? Oh, send somebody back. Tell my brothers that they don't come to this place of terror. You know, send Lazarus with a finger full of water just to quench the torment. How were they brought down? As in a moment. One breath away from death. In every instance when somebody dies, it's only one breath. He passes out of this world. And you hear he's saying? Look at their end. Look at their end. Thus my heart was grieved. He has a, he has a sense of <clears throat> repentance, isn't it? And I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Have you ever felt like that? You've come before God and you thought, 
damn it, I was stupid. Absolutely stupid. You know? To think that I thought that, or I desired that, and I didn't get things into perspective. I didn't see, you know, the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal, you know? He didn't have his spiritual glasses on, as it were, but now he's got his spiritual glasses on, and he says, I'm grieved, he says, because I see what I've been like. And he gets into this place of repentance and acknowledges, you know, his, his condition, his spiritual state. He says, I was vexed in my mind. And then he goes on to say, nevertheless, you know, even though I was in that state and in that condition, you know, and we can be in a state like that, in a condition like that, isn't it? And then all of a sudden, we are reminded, aren't we? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. All of a sudden, he remembers this universal God, the God of providence, is always with us. To realize this, you know, in the situation in which we find ourselves, nevertheless, I am continually with you. God has embraced us, and God will not let us go. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. You know, the tenderness of God, the way in which God deals with us as a father, pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. He remembers our frames, says the psalmist. He remembers that we are dust. And this is the God who has taken hold upon us. And this is the God who is continually with us. Why? Because now God lives within us. And sometimes we forget, don't we? And you will guide me with your counsel. In other words, God will lead and direct us in our lives. He give us light and illumination in our minds. He give us joy and rejoicing in our souls. And I am continually with you. This is what God is like. But the culmination, isn't it? The end of verse 24. And afterward, receive me to glory. That's the ultimate, isn't it? You know, to be taken into glory, to be there in the presence of God. Remember a couple of people have mentioned, isn't it, the, the angels that appeared to the shepherds, you know, over Christmas time, isn't it? A couple of preachers have mentioned it, haven't they? And the glory of the Lord shone round and about them, you know? Whoa, what a glimmer! A glimmer of the glory of God! Shining around and about in the glory of who God is. But afterwards you'll receive me to glory. In other words, you're going to take me. Take me out of this state, out of this condition. And when I die, he says, what's going to happen is that you're going to bring me into glory. Glory is going to be part and parcel of my eternity. Remember Jesus and his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? You come towards the end of the end of the chapter, isn't it? And the glory which you have given me, I have given them. Glory has been bestowed upon us. The Spirit of God has made us the temple of God. It reminds us in uh, the 1 Corinthians where it says about us being the temple of God that. It's his Shekinah glory that he has put within us. 
the glory of who God is. That glory that was concealed behind the veil. That glory that you read about at the end of the book of Exodus. You know, when Moses had set up this temple and they were dedicating the temple and suddenly it says that Moses couldn't enter into the temple because the glory of God was there. The glory of God. God was present. And that glory that came into that tabernacle there is the very same glory that comes and inhabits our very souls. We also heard, didn't we, the Word became flesh, and what we beheld is glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or that Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? Remember, he glowed brighter than the sun. The glory was being revealed, unveiled before these people, that they might see who he really was. We beheld it, says John. And that's the vision that we've got in front of us. The vision that shall be ours. The beatific vision, as they call it. You know? We shall see God. Have you ever thought of that? To see God. Let me come to a quick conclusion then. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. In other words, you know, I will come to death. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom am I in heaven but you? None that I desire upon earth beside you. Remember Paul writing to the church in Philippi? He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Exactly the same thing, isn't it? Whom am I in heaven but you? None that I desire upon earth beside you. His heart, his mind, his soul, all of a sudden, Everything has been corrected in his thinking, in his thought. His, his faith has been revived. He's fully conscious now of who God is and what God is like and what is his destiny. Where is he going? And he says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Do we remind ourselves of that? That God is our portion. The Levitical order, when they were instituted, what you find is that they weren't given any portion in the land. The reason for it was that God said that I am your portion. God is saying to us, look, I am for you. I am with you. I am your end. For indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. Come into the temple, isn't it? Or into the tabernacle. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Always oh, come back to that place of faith and trust, and, you know, and resting in the arms of God. And because of that, he has this absolute confidence. Oh, you're going to lead me by my hand. You're going to direct me by your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory.
Oh, that's the clear vision, isn't it? That's a clear light that he's come into. And that's why you could say, truly God is good to Israel, to such as be of a pure heart. 